The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Our discussion today is on euthanasia, life, death and who decides. With me on my left is Dr. Philip Nitschke. Uh, Philip really requires no introduction. He's the director of Exit Australia, or Exit International, I should say, and he is the public face of euthanasia in this country. Uh, to his left, Dr. Gerald Fogarty. Uh, Dr. Fogarty is a radiation oncologist, and uh, he's the director of the Marta Radiotherapy Centre. And to his left is Al Stewart. Al is on the staff of the City Bible Forum. He has been a church pastor for many years, including three, serving three years as a bishop. Now, I'd first like to, uh, really, for us as the audience to get to know our three panellists a little, in particular their connection to this topic, before we dive directly into it. So I might ask you, Philip, first, you've had a very interesting career having started out in laser physics and moving on to become even a park ranger in the Northern Territory, uh, before then undertaking a medical degree in Sydney. Yes. Uh, how did you then end up in this debate about euthanasia? Yes, I, I mean, I did come back as an elderly student to do my medical training here in Sydney, and I went back to the Northern Territory to practice medicine at about the same time when the proposal was made that there were, the legislation would change to allow a person who was dying to get lawful help to die. That was the rights of the Terminal Ear Act proposed by the Northern Territory Government in 95. And I thought it was a good idea. I just really thought as a doctor this made sense and I was really taken aback by the strong opposition, almost immediate, from the Australian Medical Association who said that they would, they would not allow such a law to pass and uh, I was upset and annoyed by their seeming attempt to try and tell the public that they knew all there was to know about dying because clearly the people knew what they had. They were supportive of the law, and I got involved politically to try and get this law through. So it was really about uh, defending certain principles, human rights. Yeah, it was, look, I, I knew what I would want, and I couldn't understand, uh, and most people were saying they wanted the same thing, and I just was annoyed about what I saw as the paternalism of a profession that would try and tell the people that they should do things the way the medical profession wanted. Okay. Now, Gerald, you've worked in oncology for some time. Some so time. You're, no, right. you're no stranger, clearly, to the process of dying. Sure. Um, so what led you to that field of study and that work? Uh, well, uh, oncology patients are very interesting, and uh, really I've devoted my life to them. I've been in practice for about 15 years and treated thousands of patients, really. I've got 25 on treatment at the moment. At the moment. Uh, so... Um, you see some real heroes in uh, oncology. Um, what leads me to the debate, though, is a concern for good medicine, is number one. Uh, number two, I'm concerned that if we do legalise euthanasia, who pulls the trigger? And the third problem I have with it is, is the slippery slope argument. Um, I think the, the, the good medicine side is, is uh, exemplified by a, uh, a story about Hodgkin's disease, you know, Hodgkin's disease was discovered about uh, 1850, and it was a, it's a disease of young people. Uh, anyone with that disease died. It wasn't until radiation was developed and uh, it, it could be treated that there were cures, uh, chemotherapy added to the cure rate. Uh, and now, you know, when Delta Goodrum came to St Vincent's with her Hodgkin's disease at the age of 18, 
in 2003, she was looking at a 97% survival rate of 10 years. That only happened because patients wanted to be treated uh, and there was people who, and people wanted to treat them. And uh, whereas if we had, uh, if we had euthanasia back in 1850, would we have really bothered to apply the science? Okay. Well, we'll get on to those questions in just a moment, but thank you for that. Now, Al, as a church pastor and uh, bishop, ultimately, uh, you've conducted a few funerals in your time and uh, no doubt accompanied people in the last stages of their life. Um, what have you learned through that process and how has it affected you? Uh, that a funeral... Well, I'll just talk about funerals if I can. A funeral uh, is very important in terms of helping people have a sense of closure... Uh, those last few days of someone's life are important in terms of the family and bringing people together. What I have learned is as much as possible, it's important to try and get the people who are grieving uh, to speak at the funeral. Sometimes people just wanted me to do it all. I say, no, no, it's very important, if you possibly can, that you say something uh, and what it means to you. And usually, it might seem strange, but usually I come away feeling a great sense of um, privilege that people have, if you like, invited me into something that is so personal and significant to them okay. uh, and exhausted. So there you go. All right. Well, the um, question before us really is, should we change the law in this country to permit the uh, individual to request the termination of their life? Now, I'd like to ask Philip, uh, why should we change the law in this country to allow that? Well, what we've got at present in this, in this country is uh, a situation which is legally indefensible. We've got a situation where suicide is not a crime. It used to be a crime to attempt suicide, but that's gone. So effectively the state is saying, if you want to go off and die by ending your own life, you don't break the law at all. But if anyone should assist you in that process, that person can suffer the most savage penalties. Assisting a suicide can result in a decade's prison in Long Bay, in two states, even life imprisonment. And that's incompatible. But on one hand, to say that suicide is not a crime, but anyone who might help you should suffer that penalty. So what we find is that when people become so sick that they can't manage that step themselves when they crave a peaceful death, and they ask someone who loves them that much to take that course and give them that assistance that they require, that person then can suffer a savage legal penalty. In fact, it was Justice Underwood, now the Governor of Tasmania, who said over the presiding of one judgment that the law in its current form discriminates against the vulnerable. The people that are so sick that when they want to die have to get help, they are discriminated against. Whereas the people that are well enough to go up and end their life, as far as the law is concerned, it doesn't matter. Okay, so partly it's a, a question you're saying of catching up with the reality that suicide is not a criminal act. Yes. So why penalise someone who assists someone? There's to no other example in law where assisting okay. someone to do something which is lawful is a crime. All right. And then secondly, your argument is about the, um, alleviating the suffering of someone who has perhaps no other choice. Yes, I mean, people will make a decision when their lives have reached a point where they crave a peaceful death. They will take that step. We can't prevent them from taking that step. And they'll do it by whatever means. And if we do nothing to help them, they'll do it by means which I don't think any of us would defend. The commonest method used by the elderly in New South Wales 2012 to end their lives is by hanging. The That's common, because commonest method of suicide. Commonest method, because yeah. they can't get information, they can't get drugs, no doctor will help them because that's a crime, and they become desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. Okay. Now, so, Gerald, you've heard those arguments. What reasons are you against the change in the law? Uh, well, to give, the, to give someone the opportunity to kill someone else, to me, it doesn't 
doesn't ring true with, with, with helping them. I don't think you really help people by killing them. Um, uh, also, I think it would be a very difficult uh, area to police, a very difficult area to legislate. Um, and if people are very sick, well, and if people are very sick and uh, they can still hang themselves, well, you know, how, how sick are they? Um, so, so I think you've got to see what sickness is. Is it, is it a, uh, a physical sickness? Is it a, uh, an emotional sickness? Is it, a, is it a psychological sickness? So I think there are many unanswered questions about it. But my main, as I stated before, my main problem here is, is what is it really doing to, uh, to the, um, the quality of medicine that people can receive? And I think there's a lot that palliative care can offer here that uh, maybe those people who are are requesting uh, uh, termination of their life aren't receiving. We'll get on to the question of palliative care in a moment. Um, But, Al, a question for you. Why shouldn't adults, presumably of sound mind, uh, be able to make their own choice when it comes to suffering extreme pain? Surely to deny this right would be a lack of compassion. Um, This is a very hard question. Um, We... We've had this, uh, a panel similar to this yesterday and went home thinking about just how hard a question it is. Um, my own mum has Alzheimer's um, and that only goes in one direction. So uh, I've thought about the end of life often uh, for someone that I love. Uh, and in one sense it can seem for individuals, it can seem to lack compassion to not give them what they desire, that is... Uh, basically to to kill them. Uh, But in many areas of life, uh, we restrict the desires of individuals for the good of a wider wider society and for the good of other people. And so we do that in terms of how fast you can drive your motor car. Uh, We do that in terms of the kind of firearms that you can own. We do that in terms of the kind of recreational drugs that you can have and, and so on. Why? Because of the greater good. Even if someone is the world's best driver, the world's safest firearm user and wouldn't hurt anyone with the drugs or whatever. And I think uh, the evidence shows that there is, if you like, uh, the slippery slope, the expansion of uh, uh, euthanasia into the groups and people and so on who are uh, defenceless or powerless in our society. And we need to restrict the rights of, or the desires of some in order to look after those who are vulnerable. So you've mentioned that issue of vulnerability and Gerald mentioned the the question of it would be difficult to police. So presumably in your thinking, Philip, there are various checks and balances in the process if the law was introduced. So how would we ensure that someone is giving consent, for example? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say we don't want to change the law, that means you're going to leave in place these inconsistent pieces of legislation we've currently got. But some countries, and briefly in the Territory some 16 years ago, we attempted to deal with this issue. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy to change the law... And you do have to be careful about codifying the conditions under which a person can take or make use of such a strategy, but countries have done this. So what sort of conditions? They've got several. In the case of Oregon, the state of America that's had it for over a decade, and the people there are very happy with it. The Oregonians aren't trying to change it. You've got to be terminally ill. That's got to be attested by two doctors. You've got to be a person who's had your your psychiatric state determined so that you're not suffering from some treatable psychiatric disease. You've got to have your palliative care options explained to you. Mm -hmm. And if you still wish to go ahead and you've gone through your cooling off period and you've got to be an adult, not a child, then you should be able to be given the drugs that you can take yourself if you want to. 
Now, what is so hard about that? The Oregonians are very pleased with their legislation. It's spread to Washington. It's spread to Montana. The states of America are moving, and we languish in the dark ages. So, so you've suggested three checks and balances. Yes, one pretty that good ones. One that you uh, give consent, one that you're of sound mind, that you've had psychiatric testing, and the third, in the case of Oregon, that you're terminally ill. And you've had palliative care options explained, and you've gone for your cooling-off period. So is the terminally ill uh, condition, the case universal, where euthanasia laws... No, it's been... It's some, some countries have looked at the idea of chronic suffering or unrelievable suffering as the determinant. And I guess there are... You can set the height of the bar where you like. I personally would set it at a different place, but people need to set a bar if they're going to introduce a law. And I think the main thing is when you bring in a law, you watch it. If it doesn't do what society wants, change it. You're not going to chisel it in stone. It can be changed. But to sit here on our hands and do nothing and leave in place incompatible and unjust legislation which has our people dragged through the courts time after time, people acting out of compassion and love to help those they love to die, is something we can do better. Gerald, the um, issue of um, being of sound mind has been raised. Uh, In your experience in dealing with Mm -hmm. cancer patients, is there any connection between those suffering that illness and, and terminal illness in general and depression? Uh, the, I'm pretty lucky in my, in my practice of uh, oncology in 15 years, I've actually never been asked for euthanasia. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether I don't listen or, 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 or whatever, but uh, it's quite amazing. Where the issue does come up usually as the last thing mentioned is usually when well patients are newly diagnosed with an asymptomatic tumour and they're sort of asking, well, what happens in the end? And I see that more as, uh, more as uh, a lack of knowledge about the journey rather than, uh, rather than really uh, uh, requesting at that stage. So um, the, the, the literature shows that, you know, if you're depressed, you've got a much higher rate of asking for euthanasia, four times it is, uh, if you've been diagnosed with, with having depression. Uh, so people who are in that terminal situation need to have access to good quality palliative care, which would involve psychiatric help. Okay. And uh, sometimes it's quoted that the majority of Australians are actually in favour of euthanasia. Yeah. Um, what you've just discussed with your sample of cancer patients seems to possibly contradict that. Yeah. Is it because perhaps there's a lack of understanding of what palliative care options there are? Uh, also, I think there's a, a fear of suffering. I had a really good trip from Crow's Nest here, actually, uh, where I got in the cab and the, and, uh, and the guy said, and we started chatting, and he said, oh, where are you off to? And I said, I'm off to a debate. And, uh, and, and uh, he said, um, and then I mentioned the debate, and he said, oh, great, it'd be great to have euthanasia. You know? And I said, no, no, I'm on the other side. Uh, and, um, and then he said, oh, look, my mum died you know, three months ago, and it was really difficult and all that sort of stuff. And he started telling about the death of his mum. And then, you know, the mum was died surrounded by all the children. She had ten kids, uh, so, the, so there was a lot there. Um, but then I said, well, okay, well, if she requested euthanasia, who would, who'd, be, who'd be pulling the trigger? Who'd be, who'd be doing it? And he said, gee, that's a hard question. So I think it's an emotive, uh, it's an emotive response to suffering. Um, and, you know, so I think... We just need to think through all the issues, and, and okay. I think that Phil's quite right. We do need to set a bar, but the bar I would set is that we don't legalise it. Well, uh, Philip, there is a question here from the audience. Is someone who has depression and wants to die appropriate for euthanasia? 
Yeah, look, there's a couple of issues, though, that I should take up here. You said that there were really two questions that were asked there. You were talking about your patients saying that when they've got access to good palliative care, they no longer wanted to, to take that option of ending their life. But you were saying that out there in the broader community, most people want access to you. Most people want to know that there is that safety net in place. Whether they would use it or not is a different issue. Lots of people want it, but not that many would take it. And as for this idea of pulling the trigger, you're the one who's talking about emotive issues. That is a very emotive term, pulling the trigger. We're not suggesting that people get a bullet through the brain for a peaceful death. Pulling the trigger is wrong. What we do, though, in terms of pulling the trigger is the patient in Oregon is given the drugs as a glass. If you want to drink it, you can. If you don't want to drink it, you don't have to. That is not pulling the trigger. The question about depression... Presumably someone has to pour the drugs in the glass. Well, is that the pulling the trigger? Pouring the glass there? Well, presumably that's what Gerald means. But, I mean, you know, we're talking about emotive terms. There couldn't be more emotive term than pulling the trigger, killing the patient. Allowing the patient to end their own life is another way of saying exactly the same thing. Now, in terms of your question, which was about, should, what was it again about, should a person who's depressed be eligible for euthanasia? Well, of course not. A person who's, a person who's able to make a sound decision is eligible. In other words, can you give consent? Now, you can be a bit depressed and still give consent. When you go and have surgery in a hospital, you'll have to sign a consent form, basically saying that you are making a decision in your best interest. Now, if you can't sign that because you are so afflicted by psychiatric disease, and it could be depression, it might be schizophrenia, then you shouldn't be given that access. But if you are able to give informed consent, of course you should be able to take this step. Another question, uh, perhaps for both of the doctors on the panel, is part of our problem that our medicine is so advanced that we keep people alive artificially. Is it okay just to decline treatment or care and allow people to die naturally? Look, that's okay and it happens now. You've got the right now to refuse treatment and, of course, we respect that. Uh, and if you say, I don't want antibiotics and that may lead to my death, you don't have to take them. I don't want a blood transfusion and that might cause my death. Of course you can refuse treatment. But... People, by and large, patients that I see, and I do have people coming along asking me for help to die at the clinic that I run, uh, those people, by and large, want more. They don't just want to wait around till some disease might carry them off if they don't take treatment. They want to have some active, active treatment which will allow them to end their lives. And that's where the difference is. They want more than the ability to simply say no. They want to be able to say, yes, I want access to a drug which, if taken, will give me that peaceful death. Okay. So Al raised the issue of uh, perhaps protecting those who are vulnerable. Uh, let me just paint a little scenario for me. We're, uh, for you. At the moment, we're in fairly tight economic times. Yes. Uh, government's reigning in expenditure. If this law was passed, uh, would there be a risk that uh, less money would be spent on palliative care because this safety net is in place? I'd look, a risk that more, as far as I can see, that would not necessarily be the case. The biggest winners in the Northern Territory with the advent of the rights of the Terminal Ill Act were the palliative care services who were screaming about the fact that there's not enough palliative care here in the Northern Territory and they had the flow of funds to try and address that issue. But, of course, most people want access to the best palliative care. The people who come to my euthanasia clinic want good palliative care. They say, I might at some stage want this extra step, but no one is saying that there shouldn't be this artificial either or argument about palliative care or euthanasia. People want both. They want access to good palliative care. And some of them say, but I might just want to go that step further, and I don't see that that should be part of the trade-off. I shouldn't just have one or the other. So, Gerald, do you see that the debate isn't so much about... Um, pain and suffering on the one hand or euthanasia on the other because pain and suffering can be alleviated through palliative care. 
do you, how do you see it? Uh, well, pain and suffering, palliative care can do a lot to alleviate pain and suffering, uh, particularly the physical suffering. Uh, people can suffer in other ways, emotionally, spiritually. Um, uh, so it's not an either-or scenario. I don't think it's an either-or scenario. I think most people have... Uh, you know, we're very lucky here in Australia. We do have quite developed palliative care services. Um, access may be, may be limited for some people, uh, and that's more a thing of provision, but uh, you know, we're lucky here we do have that provision, particularly in, in the oncology circles I, I work in. Okay. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why I don't get, why I've never been requested for euthanasia because I do I am surrounded by some really good palliative care physicians. Philip, uh, earlier in um, answering a question, you mentioned that you would uh, perhaps set the bar at a different point. Yes, I would. Yeah. So perhaps would you be able to share with us how your own thought has progressed yeah, since the, those early days? My, my views have changed as I've spent the time. I have some. I was nearly 16, 17 years working in this issue now. My views have changed. I started off, I came into the issue believing that we needed, society needed to set a bar and that that bar should be very strict and you had to be terminally ill and then maybe under very strict conditions. And in fact, in the Northern Territory law, you just about had to be dead to qualify. You had to be that sick before you were eligible to use the law which would then allow you to die. I've met so many people coming along since those time in the subsequent years who have come with different reasons for wanting to die. Not all of them medical. They want to die. And... I have great difficulty in coming along and saying, imposing my worldview on them. These are people that have come to the very rational decision that they've now reached a point in time where they wish to die. It's not my view, but I don't really feel comfortable with the idea of saying to them, look, because that's not my view, I'm going to exercise my right to prevent you taking that course. I know what will happen if I do. They'll go off and do something else. But I believe that they are seeking from me, by and large, is information about how to die. So would you say, therefore, that your thinking has shifted from the initial question of alleviation of suffering of the terminally yes. ill to really now a question of how can we respect yes. the autonomy and freedom of the individual that sums it up. to choose? That's right. Okay. To what extent has that progress in your thinking been reflective of the experience in a country such as Holland where these laws have been in place? I think, it, I think that it happens in countries which have uh, exposure to this issue so that when the community in a nation like Holland watches what's happening, they have their own views and those views evolve. And in some ways, the laws that come out of that country reflect that evolution in thinking within the nation. And I think that's a healthy sign myself. If the Dutch didn't like the way things are going, they could change it, but they haven't. They've allowed, in some ways, what I'm sure will be described as a slippery slope, but there has been an evolution, there's been a, a change, some would say a loosening of the criteria that were initially established in Holland in 2001, whereby the person doesn't have to be terminally ill, they can be a person who's got chronic suffering. The person doesn't have to be 21, they can be at a younger age, and that reflects the fact that, of course, you don't have to be 21 to be terminally ill. Uh, so there are a loosening of those conditions, partly because it was seen as being unnecessarily restrictive and in some ways quite unjust and unfair. And in your own personal case, the issue of Professor Niggett. Yeah, I've, and I've loosened my conditions completely. I, I'm now, if a person comes to me and is of sound mind and an adult and says they want to die... I would find it very difficult not to give them the information they would need for so, a peaceful death. So therefore, would it be fair to say in your thinking that uh, euthanasia is as much about escaping life as it is escaping death and dying? Escaping life and escaping death. Well, I suppose that well, euthanasia is about, to my mind, is about providing people with the opportunity of, of having their views respected and not having the door slammed in their face because we don't agree with that person's decision.
Okay. So really at this point it seems like we've come to quite a sort of philosophical juncture in yes. the discussion. To what extent should we be uh, championing the rights of the individual, in this case the right to die, perhaps versus other rights? Um, really it raises the question of what does it mean to be human and, and what gives us value? Al, uh, I might turn to you at this point. Do you think that uh, in a sense we've lost meaning in life, so we've really lost meaning in death and dying? I think we live in a society that that looks for meaning, that uh, in many ways, yeah, and we have lost meaning and purpose. And you see that with the younger generations, I think. Um, uh, that's true. And so I think in, in many ways we've replaced a larger meaning and purpose with hedonism. And uh, hedonism, as soon as uh, we worship youth and uh, don't expect to be sick or suffer at all, and so we do look for the, if you like, some people will look for the simpler way out. I suspect part of it is actually wanting to avoid facing up to our own mortality in a kind of ironic way. Mm. And, and Gerald, from your perspective, is there any value in actually going through the process of dying? Uh, I, I see dying as a very fundamental part of life. I think it's the end of life and uh, a lot of growth happens in that time. Um, uh, a lot of uh, bridges are built, uh, a lot of families reconcile. Uh, and I think part of the, uh, part of the euthanasia debate is, the, is that we would lose that. It's a, it can be a, a time of, even though people are physically quite sick, it can be a time of great healing, particularly on a, on a very human level. Okay. There's a question here uh, for Al. Uh, why are Christians so desperate to preserve life at all costs? It's uh, a good question. Uh, because we believe that human life is precious. We are the, the pro-life group, if you like. And so uh, it's often, I think you notice, when people uh, step away from... Uh, well, the Christian belief is that human life is precious because we are created in the image of God. And what gives someone value is not what they look like or what they can do or how intelligent they are or what they achieve. It's the fact that, in essence, they are in the image of God. When you lose that, it's very easy to begin to develop what I think you'd call a culture of death and that uh, rather than valuing life, those who are vulnerable, you see it particularly at the very beginnings and the end of life, become, uh, their lives are worth less, if you like. Philip, I see you've been taking oh, a few look, notes there. A few how, things there. Look, how, how would you like to respond? Oh. This idea that life is this precious gift. Look, we all agree that life is a precious gift, but what sort of gift is it if you can't give it away? I mean, what sort of a, it's not, that's not a gift, it's a burden. And of course, people say, I've got this precious gift of life, then let's at least have the ability to say, now's the time to give that precious gift away. And this idea that there's some benefit from going through dying as if it's some natural process, it's never a natural process in a hospital anymore. What you go through during that process of your palliative care and your final stages of your oncology treatment is not a natural process. And so the prolonging of that process, which is an inevitability with the success of some of, modern, some of the modern medical strategies, is not natural. So is there benefit from that? Well, maybe there is, but maybe there isn't. But the idea of forcing people down a path on the idea that they might achieve some sort of amazing benefit I think it's quite cruel. And if you ignore the patient's wishes that say, I don't want to do that, I want to die, then nope, you're going to have the treatment. That's not humane. I actually understood the point a bit differently. Um, was it not that going through the process of dying might not have a, a wonderful medical outcome? Indeed, mm -hmm. you might Just die. 
physical outcome. It might actually have more uh, social benefits, family benefits, reconciliation. Is that, is that perhaps how you would see it? Uh, our spiritual benefits. It might. It might, but it might not. And I mean, the, the idea that, I mean, and again, if we're going to say, well, we think you're going to go through, we're going to force you through that. I mean, why can't we respect the Some patients will say, look, I want every dollar spent on me to keep me alive for another five minutes. Let's respect it. And if they say, I don't, let's respect that. All right. So in some respects, it sounds like um, really it's a question of what sort of society do we want in this country? Do we want a society where each individual's autonomy and rights, that is um, most precious and most should be most cherished? Or is it a society where other values seem to uh, be more important? Um, I might turn to you at this point, Al. So if we were to enact euthanasia, to what extent should we care less? What, what impact would it have? Uh, uh, Dr Nitschke is obviously passionate about this. Um, and, and we do need to take, the, if you like, the wishes of the individual seriously. But isn't it interesting that where this, the drive for this is coming from here and overseas are the very places that actually have good palliative care? This is not a question in Africa and it's not a question in Asian societies. Now, where the palliative care probably, certainly in Africa, isn't as good. Why? Because the Western world, the, the world view that we're developing is all about individualism. We had this same panel, almost the same panel yesterday, and a, a Chinese lady came and spoke to me and said, you, you didn't understand, in the way I see the world as a Chinese person, we would never do this. Your family is so obligated to care for and look after and love you and care for you, and you are obligated back to them to love and respect and, so, and them. And so um, we're not just autonomous individuals. We actually are part of a group. We have relationship with one another. You belong to part of a family in one way or another. You belong to a community, and even as a nation, we have responsibilities to one another. And it's the wishes of some individuals, and I understand it's... It's difficult, and, and, but there will be the vulnerable who will lose their lives uh, because of this. In Holland, and get on Google and check it out, in Holland, over the last few decades, they've gone from euthanasia for the terminally ill to euthanasia for the chronically ill, euthanasia for physical suffering, now it's euthanasia for psychological suffering. They're about to bring in something for over 70s so that if you're tired of living... And in fact, you can be euthanised if you're a teenager, if you get the right consents. And so a third of people in Holland, uh, is my memory, a third of people are now euthanised without their knowledge and without their consent. And that, and even Dr Nietzsche himself has said that he has lowered the bar himself on what he would expect over time. It would happen here. So, and the random, the, the difficult choice would become the obligation that some people feel to put their hand up and say, I won't be a burden. So the, obviously there are a number of things there yes. you might wish to challenge, but um, I'd like it to also include a comment on how do you see, if this legislation was introduced, mm. how do you see this in any way shaping us as a society? Yes, well, I, well, yes, a few things there. Look, the, the tired of life thing that was thrown in at the end there, there is going to be a debate taking place in Holland about 
whether or not a person over a certain age should have the option of being able to electively end their lives, so-called tired of life criteria, but it hasn't happened yet. It will be the subject of a referendum. And I think it's quite healthy for a society to debate these issues, but it's not true to say that the Dutch are about to bring that in. They haven't brought it in, and they may or may not, depending on it, but certainly they're making sure that the population have a say on which way they're community and their government is directed on this. As far as a third of people that are dying without their consent as though that's got something to do with the Dutch phenomena, that's not true. It's quite misleading. There's a lot of people out there that are dying without their consent, but there's a lot of people in Prince Alfred Hospital here dying without their consent when medical intervention is taken on the part of a moribund patient. There's been no ability to quantify it in Australia because we don't have an openness or transparency on those final stages, whereas in a place like Holland they've quantified it. People are getting medical protocols which bring about their death without their consent all the time. It's a function of Western medicine. It's not a function of the Dutch. So let's not mix the two issues up. The final thing that you just asked me then was to bring a, introduce what concept? Well, if we were to legislate... How would it change? Yeah, do you see any change? Well, yes, I would, I would see an immense relief on the part of the majority of elderly folk who would say, I hope I never want to use it, but I just feel so grateful and glad that I know that that safety net is in place that if it gets too bad, I've got that option. As it is, they don't have that choice. They are fearful of it, and many of them, these are the ones at least who come and talk to me and come to the meetings and workshops that I run and sometimes come to my euthanasia clinic, they just want to know that there is that strategy out there in place so that they don't find themselves trapped in some one of these medical nightmares that too many of us have seen at close quarters. Alan, uh, referring to the lady who approached him yesterday, um, is making the point that the decision to terminate my life is, has an impact beyond myself. It has a relational impact on family. Often we know that it's harder for those left behind than the one going. To what extent in your counselling do you take that into account, the relational impact of a decision for someone to want to terminate their life? Well, it comes up. Uh, and how much do we take it into, into account? We talk about it. Uh, many people say, I don't want to talk about it with my family. I don't want to talk about it with my partner. Some, not many. Sometimes that happens. Ultimately, as far as my position is concerned, when people approach me for information and assistance in this area, I talk to the individual involved. I make it clear that I think that they need to address the broader impact. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I'm certainly not about forcing them to talk about it. And last night, I had a patient ring me up. It wasn't a patient, actually. It was the daughter of a person who had just ended her life, sobbing about the fact that she had no idea that this was about to happen. She was so distressed, she believed her mother had taken this step almost to upset her. It was a dreadfully difficult phone call. And again, it would have been, or could have been, I imagine, so much better handled by this dying person had this dying person talked to her family before. And so we make it clear that we see this would be beneficial. But I'm not about forcing people to do anything leave alone forcing them to talk to their families if they don't wish to. Um, Gerald, Philip made the claim in response to the issue in Holland that, in fact, you know, euthanasia without consent is happening all the time, even in our own hospitals. Um, what would you say to that? I think euthanasia does happen without consent in, uh, in Holland. I mean, there's a very good article here that, uh, which, which, which discusses all that and puts, into, puts it into context uh, what Al was saying. But the... I just find it hard to reconcile what Philip said before in that um, you've got to consent to treatment and yet people are dying from over-treatment. So I know that this is where you really need you know, smart, compassionate, palliative care and oncologists who really know 
you know, when the time is right to, 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 to pull out all treatment and to treat with what we'd call the palliative intent rather than keep going for the, you know, keep going for the days and survivals and all sort of stuff, which uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, in, the, in those times when people are incurable, it is about quality. So you're suggesting, therefore, that it's not a deliberate action on the part of a doctor? And no. Well... You're okay. I mean, no doctor's going to go around and say it's a deliberate act because that's, that's going to lead them to the decade in Long Bay. You can't go around killing patients and admitting to it. So you're saying it's happening, but just... Well, no you'd be a stupid doctor to say that. Right. And I mean, I'm not going to go around saying I end people's lives uh, in, any, in any way because of the obvious legal ramification. But the fact that you can say things like that in Holland is to do with the openness and transparency of that nation as it deals with this issue. What we haven't got in Australia is the same transparency. And so trying to get quantification of numbers about how many doctors are giving a bit more of this and a bit more of that when the, when the patient's family says with a nod and a wink, can't you do something about what my mother's going through, the moribund mother who's been there for days, and the doctor sort of nods and understands and suddenly the patient dies. Everyone's got stories like that. Now, that was a deliberate act that ended the patient's life, but no-one's going to be able to quantify it. Okay. So there's a question here from the uh, audience. Um, if, assuming the law was enacted, uh, what imposition might that put on doctors? Well, I think it would, in some ways, it would be a very, it would, it would bring about a transparency and an openness which the medical profession doesn't have at present. Doctors would know that there was a way, there was a protocol, there was an approach that had to be followed. Currently, it's a jungle out there. Doctors can do what they can get away with. Now, the good thing about legislation is it imposes guidelines. It allows the monitoring of the process. There will be strong follow-up to see who's used the law, who hasn't, did they satisfy the criteria, didn't they? And I would say that sort of transparency is immensely beneficial for society. It, it seems like um, a lot of your statements could appear to be somewhat anecdotal. Um, well, do you, it's do difficult you... to be other than anecdotal. We haven't got, I've only had legislation in place in Australia... For six months, I helped four people to die, and I know that situation intimately. And it was studied, no. but it's not a very big, uh, it's not no. a very example. Sorry, my, my comment was was with respect to the claim that it's a jungle out there for doctors. Oh, okay, um, right. Uh, do you see it that way, Gerald? And also, could you comment on the question of how do you see the doctor-patient relationship perhaps changing if this legislation was introduced? Uh, I'm very lucky in that I'm being a being a uh, being a consultant. You usually you see people through the whole journey, so they come to you with their cancer, you try to cure it, some of them don't, some of them get progressive disease, they die. So you've got a wonderful opportunity to develop a rapport, and then rapport is really all about trust, and usually not just with the patient but with the whole family and the network. So um, it doesn't really, I mean, that's, that's, that's why I've never been asked for euthanasia, but, but uh, when people realise that you're there for them, you're there to, to see them through the whole journey to their natural death they follow along that way. So uh, with... Um, just getting back to the... Doctor-patient relationship. Yeah, so, so w one thing I'm very concerned about is that uh, I would find it difficult to... Like, if, 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 if a patient said, well, look, uh, I've decided that, you know, that, that now I want to end my life, um, you know, I would find as though I'd been imposed on myself. Um, I didn't get into medicine in order to kill people. 
All right, well, we are reaching the sort of wrap-up time here. I appreciate all the questions that have come in, and there have been a number of questions that uh, haven't been able to be addressed both today and yesterday, and um, we are going to seek uh, the panellists' um, permission to comment on these and put them up on our Facebook site, so stay tuned for that. So I'm just going to turn to each of our panellists for some final words. Um, Al, I might turn to you first. Um, so in this discussion... How do you see the question of the Christian hope bearing on the topic of euthanasia? Uh, death is always a tragedy. Uh, what is interesting is that the New Testament uh, is written into a world where uh, death was not just common. Like it's common now, it's 100% if you take your time. Right? Death was not just common, but in your face, and everyone had relatives die at home and so on. And into this world where death was everywhere, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that Christians do not grieve as those who have no hope. And the Christian faith is about a hope anchored in Jesus, in his resurrection, something real and in history. You began by asking me about funerals. The fundamental thing that I notice over the years of taking funerals is that those who have a real faith in Jesus die in a totally different way to people who don't. Now, Gerald, as an uh, oncologist, uh, what is your hope for the future in this debate? Uh, well, I, my hope is that uh, things stay as they are. Uh, I think we've, uh, we, we need to protect the vulnerable. Uh, I also think uh, um, uh, that, that, that there will be a fundamental plank in medicine removed if we uh, uh, allow euthanasia. And, Philip, the last word, what is your hope? Look, I hope that we have the courage as a society to address this issue. And as far as this concern over the damage, perhaps damage to the medical profession, nothing is more damaging to the medical profession than its current refusal to accept the fact that people do want this option. The fact that you haven't been asked is interesting because I get asked all the time by patients who have said, I didn't talk to my doctor because I know what they would say. I've come to a person or I've come to a place or I've come to talk to people who will understand what I want. So it's happening that people want these changes to take place and to simply, simply sit here and say, we don't want to go there and effectively railing like some latter-day king can you trying to keep the tide out this is an inevitable change in society because we are confronted with Western medicine. It's a part of Western medicine. We can keep people alive and people are going to say, I've had enough and I want the option to die. So we're going to have to engage with this issue. So let's get on with it and engage with it. What's needed, of course, is some courageous politicians to stand up and actually bring about a debate on this issue and let's see change rather than leaving this status quo which is simply not working. Would you please join me in thanking our three panellists. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.